Good, good. Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. My name's Nathan. Here's my hope for today. It's a crazy time of year. Lots of stuff going on. Lots of unusual things, special things, extra things, event-type things, activities, parties, graduations, those kinds of things. It would be really easy for us um, to see church as another thing on our schedule this weekend, as uh, another one of nine events that we're expected to be a part of this weekend. Um, and we need to not allow it to slide into that category. We need to not allow it to slide into the category of event. This is a ritual. This is a rhythm. This is a grounding, uh, identity-forming and supporting worship time, right? This is a time where we as a community say, yeah, we've shared graduations together. We've shared this and that together. We're also a part of a group of people who are pursuing Jesus together. And so whether you are on the top of the mountain today or you barely dragged yourself in or somebody else dragged you in, um, the, the point of our gathering together is that we would encourage one another in this journey with and towards Jesus, right? So let's not allow this morning to just be a part of the weekend, but let's understand that this is the foundational piece of the week. This is the Lord's Day. And today and in this moment, as we worship, as we receive the word, as we celebrate communion in a minute, um, that, that we, this whole thing is to remind us who we are, and it's to give glory to the one who's created and redeemed us. Amen? All right, great. Raise your hand if you like uh, notes. Bob's got note pages. If you like a Bible, someone can hand you a Bible. I'm doing a lot of sm shorter scriptures on the screen today, so uh, I will provide those for you. Also, if you're on the aisle, would you grab a basket? Um, we almost always have new folks every Sunday in the summer, even though a crowd is thinner. We have a bunch of kids going to camp today, and their families are taking them off to that. If you'd like a card, or like to fill out a card, please do so. You can give us your, your contact info, and we can try to stay in better touch with you that way. All right, we'll collect the cards later in the morning. All right, well, here, here's my sermon today. I'm going to give it to you right up front. I'm just going to lay it out, and then we'll walk through it together, right? Um, when I scoped out this series in the fall, or in, in September... Boy, it was actually February when I scoped out this series, and, and I got to this, this Sunday, and the topic for this Sunday is the forgiveness of sins. I thought, oh my goodness, that's so boring. We've heard that message so many times, but I got to tell you that in recent weeks as I've been working on this sermon, I'm increasingly excited about this message this morning because it is, it's such a uniquely Christian belief. It's such an important Christian belief. It has always been and a critical and important Christian belief. I think that today it is probably a critical Christian belief and it's only going to become more important as we move into the future. We believe, this is the line of the, we're teaching through the Apostles' Creed. We're almost done. This is week 19. I think we got one or two more. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. Christians believe in the forgiveness of sins. All right, so here's what I want to say about this this morning. Here's my message right up front, and then we'll talk, we'll talk through it. First, I want to say this, that the reason forgiveness is so hard is because sin hurts so bad. That's why forgiveness is so hard, because sin hurts so bad. Secondly, I want to say that forgiveness is what transforms hurt into healing. It is the only thing that transforms hurt into healing, it's forgiveness. And then finally, I want to say that the church is the community, is the context in which 
this transformation from hurt to healed happens. All right? Okay, so the big picture doctrine that we're talking about is the doctrine of the church. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about the doctrine of the church, a big picture. Now today, we're going to funnel it down and we're going to focus on uh, one of the unique or specific doctrines within that bigger doctrine of the church, which is the doctrine of the forgiveness of saints. I mean, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins has two distinct components. They're related, but they're distinct. The first of those components is forgiveness. And the second, of course, is sin. I think it's really interesting the level of resistance that we have towards both of these critical components of this doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. We typically resist forgiveness. Let's start there. We don't naturally lean toward forgiveness. I rarely wake up in the morning and go, I'm so excited, I have this meeting today and I get to forgive so-and-so who's been offending me, right? I, I don't think that's ever happened. Forgiveness is not, in a sense, natural. We typically resist it. Revenge is natural. When I'm hurt, when I'm offended, when I'm angered, I don't feel like forgiving. I feel like giving retribution. I feel like fighting back. I think this is probably why I was a better than average tackler in high school. Because all day long, for like six or seven hours, I'm in high school. And there's all the crazy chaos of high school. And then I get to go and hit people as hard as I can for two hours after school every day. I actually enjoyed it. It was super therapeutic. Right? You think of all the adolescent primal instincts swirling around inside of people. Forgiveness is not one of them. Is it? Right? It's not. It's, it's not what comes to mind. It's basic. It is this human, in a human sense, it's a really, it's a really difficult thing to forgive. It's easy to, for, to resist it. So we'll talk more about this sort of this tendency to resist forgiveness. The second of the two concepts that's a part of the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins is, of course, the idea of sin. And we typically, or generally speaking, we resist this as well. Uh, sometimes we deny sin. We rarely admit sin. It's not so much that our culture denies the idea of sin is as much as it is that we don't see sin as sinful. We don't see sin as destructive. We don't see sin as harmful. We typically glorify sin. Uh, we think sin is exciting. Welcome to Sin City. Sin is the part of the movie that's fun. Sin is no big deal, right? We don't have a good or an accurate concept of sin. Sin is not just a bad thing. In truth, sin is selfish and destructive. It always is. Right, so these are the two basic concepts that we're going to kind of walk through today. The, the idea of forgiveness and the idea of sin and the crazy, radical, powerful Christian belief that somehow these two go together. So let's begin by talking a little bit more about the Bible's perspective on sin. It's more than a dozen words um, that the writers of the Bible use when referring to sin. In the Old Testament, there's essentially three. There's a word, I'm just going to give you the English versions because it would be crazy to try it otherwise. There's a word that basically means failure. Right? You were, it's a failure to be who you were created to be. So King David prays, blessed is he whose sin is covered, whose failures is covered. Another time he prays, remember not, O Lord, the sins of my youth. Remember not the failures of my youth. Another word is the word that essentially means perversion or distortion. This is not so much the act of sin as it is the problem within that leads to the act of sin. So David will pray, pardon the guilt of my sin, 
And that's the, there's the word guilt. It's like pardon the perversion that actually led me to do this thing that's destructive. A third word in the Old Testament that informs the idea of sin is this idea of rebellion against God. So if God is the creator of all things, then all things must submit to God. The failure to submit to God is an act of rebellion, i.e. an act of sin. In the New Testament, there are seven or more words for sin. The first is similar to the first Old Testament word. It comes from the archery context. It means to miss the mark. Like you were supposed to, you're supposed to hit it right there. That's where you're aiming. That's what you're trying to do. But you failed to hit the mark. You failed to hit what you were aiming at. Another word basically means to cross the line. You knew that that was right and that was wrong, but you chose to cross the line. You chose to step over the line. There's another word that is, basically means lawlessness. It's translated pridefulness. It's like a defiance. It's the idea that you're above the law. They don't apply to you, right? Uh, a fourth word in the New Testament is this word disrespect. It's the opposite of reverence. Sometimes it's translated un godliness. And then there's a word for sin in the New Testament that basically means doing the wrong thing. Sometimes it's translated wickedness or, in, or unjust, injustice. It's the opposite of what the Bible means by righteousness. So what's interesting is when you sin by doing the wrong thing, you hurt actually, there's actually two ways that you hurt. You hurt people and you hurt God. After King David sins by taking the wife of his bodyguard, Bathsheba, and then she becomes pregnant, and so then he has his bodyguard, Uriah, killed, which is a pretty, pretty, you know, A-plus process of sin right there. Uh, he prays in Psalm 51 that he has sinned against God and God only, and we go, what in the world? You've sinned against all these people, but what David's recognizing is some really important concept that we fail to, which is that sin not only, not only destroys people, uh, but it actually also has an emotional impact on God. It hurts God doing the wrong thing. A couple more. Uh, there's a word in the New Testament for sin that basically means debt, like the failure to give what is due. This is what the word Jesus uses when he teaches his disciples to pray, forgive them their debts as we forgive, uh, our, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's like a moral debt, like I should have done this for you, but I didn't. I owed this to you, but I failed to deliver. And then finally, there's this word that means sort of deliberate refusal. Paul writes that by Adam's disobedience or by Adam's deliberate refusal of the law, many were made sinners. In other words, Paul in the New Testament is referring all the way back to the beginning and saying Adam's deliberate refusal to respect God's instruction to not eat of that tree led us all down this road of, uh, of sinfulness and having a sinful problem, sin problem. So there's a pretty robust definition of sin. In case sin has just been sort of this empty church word for you, we've talked about sin as failure, as perversion, as rebellion, as missing the target, crossing the line, lawless, lawlessness, disrespect, doing the wrong thing, moral debt, and deliberate refusal. Paul, to the Romans in the third chapter, gives a really good summary statement. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then a couple chapters later, he says the wages of sin is death. Right? It's always harmful. It's always hurtful. It's always destructive. It will ultimately always lead to death. So for 1,800 years, friends, the 
Christians have gathered together and have declared as part of the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, which maybe that's become kind of a boring statement for us unless you embrace a biblical view of sin, not a cultural view of sin, in which case declaring that sin can be forgiven is radical and powerful. It's completely liberating. Right? So let's talk, I mean, we're talking about the idea that something that can damage in 12 different ways can be forgiven, which is radical. Let's talk more about that. Let's talk about forgiveness for a minute. There's a couple, a couple words used for forgiveness in the Old Testament. One is to hide, to, to put apart, like as far as the east is from the west, there's a word that means to lift, like sin is a burden. The picture is somebody who's just burdened down, bent over, looking down, almost less human, like a beast, because they're so burdened. And then to forgive is to lift the burden off of them so they can stand up straight again, look you in the eye again, to be forgiven, have the weight of sin the burden lifted. In other words, to send away. Moses taught the people of Israel when they were wandering around in the desert to put their sin on the head of a goat, symbolically, and then send the goat out of the camp. Send the sin away. The goat would leave the community, would go out of the camp, right? Would be sent away. In the New Testament, some really beautiful language about forgiveness. Uh, one concept is the idea of being forgiven as being set free. This common phrase you hear in Acts, the instruction given to people who are becoming Christians is repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It could literally be rendered repent and be baptized to be set free from your sins. Biblical uh, writers refer to being set free from punishment, uh, set free from debt, right? Forgiveness is always in the New Testament seen as a gift. It is not earned. Please, please hear this point, because this is, I think, where we miss it the most significantly. Forgiveness is not earned. Forgiveness, say this, forgiveness is not earned. Right. Which means no one ever deserves to be forgiven. No one ever deserves to be forgiven. Oh, well, they've been working so hard, and they paid back all that debt. They deserve to be forgiven. No, they deserve to have their debt canceled out because they fulfilled the obligation. Oh, he deserves to be forgiven. He's been in jail for so many years. He's paid his debt to society. No, he's fulfilled his obligation. Neither of those two things are the gift of forgiveness. Forgiveness is never deserved. Forgiveness is always a gift that is given, right? It's, it's qualitatively different um, than something that you pay back or work off. You release. You, you never deserve it. When, when, when forgiven, sins are erased, they are canceled. The biblical languages, they're blotted out, which refers to the way they would write. We might say they're deleted. They're deleted. If, in forgiveness, the contract that Paul kind of lays out that sin always leads to death is actually broken. And if we finish that Romans 6, 23 verses, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And there's even more in the New Testament, just really quickly. To be forgiven is to be saved, it's to be delivered, it's to be rescued, it's to be healed, it's to be liberated, it's to be cleaned, it's to be purified morally, purified socially. Stigmas go down because you're pure now, right? Several New Testament writers, including John, Paul, and the writer of Hebrews, summarize the forgiveness of sins by saying simply, having your sins taken 
away. They're taken away. Right? So pro- proclaiming the forgiveness of sins is a central part of the sermons of the apostles in Acts. And the connection, um, they connect the forgiveness of sins directly to one event. This is probably review for many of us, but it's essential that we don't lose this connection. They connect the forgiveness of sins to the one event of Jesus dying on the cross, right? The message is that Jesus' death pays the penalty and breaks the power of sin for all humanity. So the forgiveness of sins is core to the message of early Christianity. It's foundational to what we teach as a Christian church. It's one of the primary results of what we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Let me say that again. Who Jesus is, man and God, and what Jesus did, lived a life free of sin and then died on the cross to forgive us our sins. One of the consequences of his death is that we're freed from sin. We believe in sin. That's really important. And as we back up as a church from our view of sin, we, we neuter the power of this doctrine. We believe in sin. We believe it's truly horrible, that it's perverted, it's destructive, and it causes pain. We also believe that sin can be forgiven, though. Sin can be forgiven. Not paid back. Not worked off. Forgiven. When I was a kid... I had a horse when I was in junior high. Her name was Melody's Tangerine. I called her Tangy. She ate alfalfa hay. cost $11 a bale. And I was part of the responsibility at that point. The agreement was you can have a horse. You got to buy the food. So I was mowing lawns for $5 a lawn. bale of hay cost 11 bucks. I was having a hard time keeping up with my horse. And uh, it was cheaper to buy a bunch of hay at once. And so I remember laying down. I didn't. My dad did several hundred dollars for a barn full of hay. So now I'm a seventh grade kid and I'm in significant debt. And um, at some point, we should talk about this, Um, my dad apparently realizes maybe it's not too good from a psychological standpoint for my kid to be in debt at 13. And he forgave my debt. He forgave it. He didn't say, do all these chores and then all you can work off your debt. Do you see the difference? He just canceled the debt. He just deleted the debt. So I went from being hundreds of dollars in debt to not being in debt. And the financial examples are helpful because they're so concrete. I hope that there is some experience in your life that you can point to as a concrete example of forgiveness. Maybe they're financial because those are so easy to measure, right? I was several hundred and now someone just said, don't pay that back. I am forgiving that debt. Here's a really good picture, a real simple picture of how forgiveness works in the Bible. Basically, there's three characters in a story. There's God, there's me, and there's others, right? And by saying that I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I'm saying a couple things. I'm saying that I believe that God forgives me. I'm also saying God forgives others. It's really, really inconsistent to say one without the other. What's interesting is how easily we say God forgives me. Or even how easily we say, God will forgive you. Uh, In certain cases, in certain situations, but in some situations, we're not so sure. I've been especially tuned into this in the last few weeks as I've been writing this sermon, which is the blessing of preparing something. You've just tuned into it for a while. And I've just absolutely been fascinated by this observation. If I based my understanding of Christians' belief in the forgiveness of sins 
only on what I have heard in the last two weeks, not on what I've read in the Bible, not on what I've studied in theology, and not on what I've experienced in the life of the church, because I've experienced forgiveness personally, and I've seen the church forgive people in a beautiful way. So if I ignore, pretend I just woke up out of a coma, and all I know about forgiveness is what I heard in the last two weeks, I would believe this, that yes, Christians believe in the forgiveness of sins, except if the sins are committed by radical Muslims. Except if the sins are committed by a pedophile priest. Except if the sins are committed by somebody with some significant sexual identity struggle or issue. In fact, if I was really honest, the conversations that I've overheard or even been a part of in the last couple weeks have indicated that actually there's more support for this claim, that Christians don't believe in the forgiveness of sins than that they do believe in the forgiveness of sins. Just an interesting observation that I've made. There are seasons when there's things going on in culture and in the church where the narrative is, look at the church forgiving, and it's beautiful, and we should celebrate that. We're in a situation now for a variety of reasons. I'm not talking about any one single story where the single narrative that's probably kind of emerging or bleeding through the wall most significantly is, I'm not sure Christians forgive so much, right? Just an interesting thing. In fact, um, you might say, well, those are some pretty uh, extreme examples, Nate. Those are kind of horrible, extreme examples. Well, here's the thing. To the offended, sin is always horrible, right? Sin always hurts, So it makes it so hard to forgive. But that's also why forgiving can turn the hurt into healing. So in addition to saying that God forgives us, God forgives others, when we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're also saying that I believe you can forgive me. I believe I can forgive you. The only way that hurt, that the hurt that happens when we sin against each other, and we do, and the only way that that hurt can be healed is through forgiveness. We resist forgiving others because it hurts so bad when we were sinned against. And we can tend to think, if I forgive you, it's like I'm saying, what you did to me is okay. But it's not. This is why, even though it's just a common thing, the way we talk in most of our families is, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, don't worry about it. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. Oh, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's not okay. And this is, this is, uh, shape the way we understand forgiveness. I want to hold on and not forgive somebody because I'm still shaped by this cultural idea that if I forgive you, it's as if I'm saying what you did to me, I'm okay with. When in fact, that's absolutely the, the, the opposite of what's true. What you did to me was a sin and it hurt and it was wrong, right? So now I have one of three options. I really only have one of three options. Either, number one, I nurse that hurt and just let it fester and destroy me from within for a long, long time. That's one option. Or, number two, I hit you back as hard as I can, right? I try to hurt you back like you hurt me, and we get to play that game, and somebody finally launches a nuclear missile, right? Because it just continues to escalate forever. It's, what is it, McCoys, Hatfields and McCoys, whatever. It's just like feudalism. Or, option three, I do a profoundly... A subversive, distinctly Christian thing, I forgive your sin. I'm not saying it's okay. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. It was not okay. It was a sin. It hurt. It was wrong. But I'm going to forgive you of that. 
I'm going to set you free. I'm going to cancel the debt there. I'm going to forgive the sin. Super, super hard. This is why the doctrine of the church comes after the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because only the Spirit can enable us to do something that is so unnatural, like forgiving somebody who has hurt you. But, you know, you come to situations like this and you just kind of have to be straight with yourself. Either I believe that Jesus suffered for the sins of the world or I believe Jesus suffered for some of them. Right? I either believe Jesus died as a just punishment for the sin of the whole world or I believe he just died for a few. I either believe in conditional forgiveness or I believe with the historic church backing me up in the simple truth in the forgiveness of sins. And then finally, let's widen the scope back out and um, let's focus back on the bigger picture of the doctrine of the church, which is where the, the context for the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. It's the community or the context in which the forgiveness of sins happens. Why is it so important that we keep these two linked? Why is it so important, in other words, that we, that we understand forgiveness within the greater picture of the church? There's about four really awesome reasons. I'm only going to talk about one. Here's the one that I think is the most important, well, at least for us today. We need to correct the prevailing cultural perspective that sinners aren't welcome in church. Okay? When I'm out there like coaching with my baseball coach buddies, here's the kinds of things they say. If I came to your church, the walls would fall down. I don't know where that started, how that, but we still hear that. And they're just being silly, but where did that happen? And I want to push back on that. I want to push back on that incorrect perception that sin doesn't go with church. And the church doesn't go with sin. Now, this is, this is really interesting. It's kind, of, uh, it's kind of a nuanced deal. Believing that sinners aren't welcome in church is, would be like believing that the sick aren't welcome in a hospital, right? Believing that sinners aren't welcome in church would be like believing you're welcome at the ER unless your leg's broken, in which case you, you're not quite ready to come here yet. The purpose of the church, the purpose of the church, and by that I mean the community, um, is to heal and transform sinners. In order to accomplish our purpose, therefore, we got to be close. We've got to be in close proximity with sinners. And I'm going to drop that they, them, they, us language in just a second. We, the church, must live close to sinners. We must share life with sinners before they begin the process of becoming saints. Here's what's interesting. The ancient Christian writers are so powerfully focused on holiness, on being distinct from the world, on being devoted to Jesus on a level that is totally radical, totally challenging. But they also talk about the paradoxical proximity of church and sin, which is a really interesting phrase. We might think that sin and church don't go together, but perhaps, ironically, they do, or at least they should, right? My mentor used to say, you need to kick in the gates of hell. Go somewhere where you can kick in the gates of hell. Have you ever noticed how close you have to get to something in order to, to kick it, right? We, we can't do the work the church is supposed to do from a safe distance, right? Can't hit a button, let a drone go, whatever, one writer put it this way, the chief proof of the church's holiness, ironically, is that it is found among sinners, redeeming, reaching out, healing, sanctifying. And what's the belief that supports this? It's the belief in the forgiveness of sins. It's the belief that you're not defined by that. 
That's a perversion. You stepped over the line. You made the wrong choice. But there's forgiveness for that. And that journey of sinners becoming saints is the proof of the effectiveness of grace. And here, we're all in that, right? We're all on that journey. So we can only talk about church and sinners so long because pretty soon we realize we're all on that journey. We're all sinners becoming saints. It's a process for all of us. You can't really ever find a space to put a real clear line down because the, the church and sin, it's like they're distinctly different and yet they've always gone together because this is the place where the transformation from one as your lead identity shifts to the other as your lead and your core identity. Uh, just a couple final comments. I'm sure that the person that I sin against the most in my life is my wife. Because virtually every decision that I make that is selfish and destructive hurts her because we live in such close proximity, right? So every time I do something that is not right or good, it affects her immediately. It affects my kids next. Um, and yet, in her forgiving me, I actually experience this doctrine that I read about on a very intimate and realistic and practical level that I could be forgiven. And so then that forgiveness actually, because it's authentic, because it's real, it's not window dressing, that forgiveness actually fuels my transformation. And so I want then to do, to become the man I'm supposed to be, meant to be, called to be. So that home becomes like a little mini church of transformation. And I hope that maybe you can see that within the context of a home or a family. And then let's take that idea a little bit bigger and, and understand the, the, the context of the church in that regard. Because as Christians, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. The church should be a place where it's okay to fail. It should be a place where we know, right, that we're all growing. We're all in the process of becoming. There's a lot of grace for the mistakes and the sins, and man, you really offended me, but you know what? That's why we're doing this together is because this is a place where that kind of thing can happen and, be, and, and to be worked through. It's not some utopian society where we're all just so perfect and best friends with everybody. Friends, in the last year, final comment, in the last year, um, our church has become much more well-known in this city as a church that's helping people, as a church that's reaching out um, I have a hope about this. I'd like to add this thought to that growing perspective or perception of Emmaus. What if people, both in our church and outside of our church, could say of us, those people, they believe in the forgiveness of sins. They believe that sins can be forgiven. Whether they use the language or not, they'll stop talking about the roof falling down. They'll stop talking about hard judgment because of their, their past or their 20s or their high school. Yeah, you knew me in high school, Nate, and I'm all embarrassed to talk to you, right? Because they, what if they knew us as, oh, but those are the, but those are the people that forgive sins. Right? What if those that you do life with you know, when you leave the house at the end of the, 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 the party or the, and the coffee time or whatever, what if your friend says, you know what I really appreciate about her? She believes in the forgiveness of sins. I just feel so set free from anything that ever was destructive in my life. What if your kids, when they grow up and you're gone or no longer here, could remember you as, you know what, my dad? He believed in the forgiveness of sins. My mom... Yeah, she believed. She believed in sin. And she believed sin could be forgiven. Right. May we receive forgiveness. 
May we offer forgiveness. And, and may we become uh, forgiveness people. Amen? just a minute. Uh, whenever we talk about forgiveness, we're talking about real pain. So I'm just going to be quiet, give you just one minute, and uh, invite you to pray, rest, invite the Spirit to speak to you about uh, what you need to hold on to from this message, how you're supposed to put it into action, how I am. If you are struggling to receive forgiveness from God, may God give you the grace to receive it. If you are struggling to offer forgiveness to another person, may God empower you to extend that. And if you are struggling to ask another person for forgiveness, may God give you the courage and the grace to do that. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I mean this. It's truly a, a privilege for me to be on this journey with you. And after 10 years, there's a whole, there's a big handful of you where we've had real hard talks. And there's, as we've had to work through offenses and hurt feelings and frustrations and the perception of failure and real failure. And uh, it's a blessing. I see this as a blessing to be on this journey with all of you. And uh, may we be the people that Christ has called us to be together. Friends, uh, we have a team going to Mexico in a couple of weeks, and uh, there's an opportunity to support that trip. There should be a table back, or a board back there with pull tags uh, where you can pull, is there? Did we get it this time? Maybe? Anybody cannot, I'm looking for, there we go. Do we have it today? Oh, okay, good. Rich is the executive director yeah, executively directing. No, I appreciate that. Sorry, I didn't get that. All right, well, let's pray for the Mexico team. We'll do that as the, as the um, trip draws closer. And uh, thanks for your strong support the last couple of weeks. Why don't you stand up with me? May the peace of Christ be always with you, friends. Thanks. Take a minute. Let's greet one another with the peace of Christ. We'll come back together for a time of worship. Just a minute.